Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, November 12th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A simple question with a very, very complicated answer. How many holes does a straw have? Why the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine could be significant beyond COVID-19, and yet another botched art restoration in Spain. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. All right, so this was a post on Kotki.org yesterday, and I want to expand on it because based on the unending debate about it among my friends, I don't think this is a topic that will ever have a true endpoint. Much like the topic itself. That is, what is a hole? H-O-L-E, hole. The dictionary definition of the noun version lists, among more niche definitions relating to golf and various slang, a hollowed-out place, but also an opening through something, and an area where something is missing. So to begin with, each of these three are slightly different. Does something simply have to be missing? Does it need to have been taken out of a thing? Does it need to be an absence that goes all the way through that thing? Someone on Reddit asked 1,600 people how many holes they thought various objects had, and analyzing the results can really make you start to question what a hole is. The objects in the survey were a straw, a donut, a rubber band, a cup, a bowl, a spoon, the letter O, a washer, like for bolts, and a loop on a knot. For some of those, like a donut, one hole, and a spoon, zero holes, people were mostly aligned, but items like the cup and the straw were quite divisive. People were close to half and half on whether a cup has zero holes or one hole, and as for the straw, people can't agree if it has one or two holes, with a few people also saying zero. To get to the bottom of what a hole really is and why some people might think a straw has one hole while others think it has two, I want to first turn to math, specifically the field of topology, or quoting Scientific American, the field of math concerned with the properties of shapes that stay the same no matter how you squish or stretch them as long as you don't tear them or glue things together, end quote. So going along with that, here is how Wolfram defines a hole. Quote, A hole in a mathematical object is a topological structure which prevents the object from being continuously shrunk to a point. When dealing with topological spaces, a disconnectivity is interpreted as a hole in the space. Examples of holes are things like the donut hole in the center of the torus, a domain removed from a plane, and the portion missing from Euclidean space after cutting a knot out from it. End quote. Now, if you're not a mathematician, that might be a bit difficult to follow, so for some help, I turned to Michael Stevens from Vsauce, who made a video earlier this year asking how many holes humans have. And it seems kind of obvious at first, right? We've got a nose, a mouth, ears, I could go on. But then if you think about pores in our skin, or even smaller, as Michael points out, the subatomic gaps between the molecules we're made out of, But there's another school of thought that says we have just one hole, that we are but giant meat puppets built around one singular hole, the one that goes from our mouths out through our butts, because that's the only hole in which something can pass through. 
Eventually, Michael comes to the conclusion that humans, without considering possible piercing, wounds, or genetic conditions, have seven holes. And to see how he got there, I highly recommend watching the hole video, link in the show notes. But in that exploration, he brings up a few other points that I want to hit on here. First, he dives a bit more into that topological discussion and explains the difference between through holes and what are called blind holes. A blind hole is the kind anyone who said a cup has a hole was envisioning. It's something you can stick your hand into, but it doesn't come out the other end. A through hole, by contrast, is something like the singular hole interpretation of a straw. The one hole is where the liquid passes through. In this interpretation, it's helpful to refer to the two holes of a straw, you know, where you put your mouth and where you put it in your drink, as openings, not holes. So a through hole is any hole in which something can be passed through, and according to many topologists, is the only true type of hole. That's because topology is concerned with shapes still being the same shape no matter how you squish or stretch them, so long as you don't cut them up or glue pieces back. So if you took, as Michael does, a cookie jar with a hole that you put your hand into to grab the cookies, but then you squished the cookie jar back out, you could flatten it all the way to a plate, which no longer has a hole. But if you took a donut and stretched or flattened it as much as you want, you would always still have a hole. And thus, real holes are ones that will always exist and through which something can pass all the way through. Now, this gets into a really weird couple of philosophical considerations, because when we think of a hole, you know, a lot of us think of a hole that we dig in the ground. By this definition, that classic kind of hole isn't even a hole unless we dig all the way to the other side of the world. And Michael also poses this conundrum. If donuts do have holes, because they clearly have something which can be passed through, a through hole, what happens when you eat a donut? Is the hole now inside of you? Of course, at that point, we're breaking with the topological definition because in the act of eating, you have chopped up the donut instead of keeping it the same shape, but it's still an interesting question more philosophically. And Michael and others point out that holes are ontologically parasitic because their existence depends on the existence of something else. And in other news, my new punk band is called The Ontological Parasites. Now, for some things, like a bowl, if someone said there was a hole in it, you'd probably think they meant it was leaking, before you thought of the big main opening as a hole, which adds to the idea that holes are things in which other things can pass through, but also illustrates the importance of context when discussing holes. Clearly, this is an investigation that creates more questions than answers. I like the way that Evelyn Lamb summed it up in a Scientific American article that goes way in the weeds on one- and two-dimensional holes, so check it out if you want to read more. But Lamb says, quote, Is there a better way to describe holes? I talked with some of my topologist friends and discovered two things. Topologists don't all agree on what a hole is, and it's fun and interesting to think about different interpretations of a word whose mathematical definition isn't completely settled. I think my larger conclusion, in the spirit of the season, is that holes are like Santa Claus. The true meaning is in your heart. End quote. And I've also got to recommend here my favorite episode of one of my favorite TV shows ever, Going Deep with David Reese, in which he dove into the fascinating details behind everyday activities like tying your shoes, lighting a match, and yes, digging a hole. 
It aired on National Geographic back in 2014, so it looks like you may have to buy it to see the whole episode. But I've put a link in the show notes to one clip in which David and his producer discuss what really makes a hole a hole. And one takeaway from that clip is David insisting that you have to consider the cultural context when deciding what makes a hole a hole, not merely a strict scientific definition applied bluntly to any and everything. On that note, given everything that I have learned today, I have to say that, topologically speaking, I am firmly on team one hole when it comes to straws. However, culturally, if someone told me their straw has a hole in it, I will probably presume that means it has a leak, a small puncture somewhere, which I guess is the same type of hole, a through hole. And also, I don't think I'm ready to be pedantic enough to insist that a hole dug in the ground isn't a hole. I guess while I have more certainty on the concepts I'm engaging with now, it's still sort of a nebulous question for which we may never quite know the whole truth. So I want to dig a little deeper into the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that was announced on Monday as being 90% effective in its late-stage trial. Now, yes, there are a lot of unknowns still. We're awaiting a peer-reviewed report and so far just going on their press release, basically. So there are a lot of big questions, some of which the researchers themselves may not know yet. Like, how long will the immunity from the vaccine last? How does it affect high-risk people with other health conditions? Does it prevent infection or just symptoms? And even beyond all that, we should temper our excitement about the vaccine because it still has many hurdles to pass through before being approved and headed for distribution. And then there's the challenges of getting it out to everyone, most likely with high-risk people and healthcare workers first, you know, just generally in terms of logistics and incredible demand that it will cause for things like glass vials, but also considering that this particular vaccine has to be stored at negative 70 degrees Celsius, significantly colder than most vaccines. Quoting Wired, the dry ice in the box containing vaccine doses has to be replenished within 24 hours upon delivery. The box can't be open more than twice in one day, and it can only remain open for a maximum of one minute each time. End quote. So yeah, this vaccine, if it even gets out the door, is going to be tricky. But it is still a huge deal. And for one, it confirms that we can make a vaccine that will provide strong immunity from the disease. That was not always so certain, so this is huge. But also, apart from COVID-19, the way this vaccine was made is significant. It would not only set a record for speed, but it would also be the first successful mRNA vaccine. So the basic concept of a vaccine is introducing a harmless version of a pathogen into the immune system so it knows how to respond more quickly if the real thing comes along in the future. Finding the balance of enough pathogen to work but not too much to make someone sick is the challenge, and historically, scientists have mostly worked it out through trial and error. But over the last 10 years, there's been a shift towards rational drug design, or quoting Wired, Understanding the structure and function of the target, like, say, the spiky protein SARS-CoV-2 uses to get into human cells, and building molecules that can either bind to that target directly or produce other molecules that can. Genetic vaccines represent an important step in this scientific evolution. 
Engineers can now design strands of mRNA on computers guided by algorithms that predict which combination of genetic letters will yield a viral protein with just the right shape to prod the human body into producing protective antibodies. End quote. Among other things, this approach means that scientists don't have to wait to grow the virus, sort of, in the lab. They just need the pathogen's genome, which Chinese scientists released for SARS-CoV-2 back in January. To explain a little more clearly how this works, podcaster The Literature Lady posted a helpful thread on Twitter sharing the breakdown that she got from her microbiologist husband, quoting part of that thread, This vaccine is pretty cool because it doesn't contain the full COVID-19 RNA strand. That would be dangerous as it could replicate. The vaccine left out the parts that make the virus work and replicate it in our cells. Instead, it contains just parts of it. The vaccine has enough of the COVID-19 RNA parts for our bodies to create the needed antibodies to make us immune. Think of a car that has been stripped of the engine and a wheel or two. The car won't run, but we'd have enough parts to identify the make and model. The vaccine works the same way. The white blood cells will be able to identify it as a bad guy, create antibodies just for it, and be primed to attack if it ever comes into contact with the live virus. End quote. Now, the major upside to genetic vaccines is how much more quickly the process is than traditional vaccine development. But the downside has been cost and risk. Before this year, only 12 mRNA vaccines ever made it to human trials, and none of them were approved. Because of that, there hasn't been a huge incentive for lots of teams to get on board with them, but enough people have that they've become a bit easier and cheaper to make in recent years, and now with the pandemic, the financial incentive is finally there, and risks seem more worth it. And this isn't even the only COVID-19 mRNA vaccine being developed. Moderna's is also mRNA-based, and they are currently in their Phase 3 trials. The thing is, especially if this vaccine proves successful, it won't just help end the pandemic. It will mean a huge shift in the field of immunology, showing proof of concept that mRNA vaccines can work and opening pathways for funding on other vaccines and genetic therapies that are desperately needed. Now, again, there are so many reasons not to get our hopes up completely just yet, but even getting to this point is a very, very big deal. Ending today on a slightly lighter note, yet another artwork in Spain has undergone a completely botched restoration. You may remember back in 2012 when a woman from Borja, Spain was asked by her priest to restore a painting of Jesus on the wall of the church, and, well, she wasn't exactly a professional restoration artist, and the result ended up looking so strange and bluntly done that it has been dubbed Monkey Jesus. Fortunately for the town of Borja, over the years, the Monkey Jesus painting has turned into something of a tourist attraction, so it kind of worked out. But these botched restorations just keep happening. Over the summer, a Baroque-era painting of the Virgin Mary by Bartolome Esteban Murillo was bought by a collector who then had it restored by a furniture restorer. And I'm sure that person is great at restoring furniture, but, you know, a sofa is slightly different from a 350-year-old oil painting. And therefore the results? Well, it actually made the Virgin Mary look remarkably similar to Monkey Jesus. And when that happened, the Association of Conservators and Restorers in Spain called for better regulation over who is allowed to restore works of cultural significance. And giving credence to their point, it has happened again. This time with a sculpture in Palencia. 
A carved figure adorning an early 20th century building that now serves as a bank used to show a detailed, smiling woman and now looks like a Dilbert character. Or, as some are saying online, a bit like Donald Trump. The photos of the not-restoration were shared by artist Antonio Guzman Capel on Facebook, but so far we don't know who commissioned the restoration or who performed it. A Palencia City Hall spokesman said an investigation is currently being carried out. Maybe this latest installment will finally lead to stricter regulations or punishments for amateurs who, in the minds of the Conservation Association, are destroying pieces of Spain's heritage. The most Palencia can probably look forward to is a similar bump in their tourism like happened in Borja. In any case, you can see before and after photos of each of these at the links in the show notes. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go pop over to the Mets. I've got some paintings to restore. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.